Well, as you know by now, we've started a, a new um, sermon series titled Creed. And uh, this is going to be sort of an eight-week uh, series where we sort of take our time looking at one stanza at a time so we can understand the Apostle Creed's meaning and its purpose for the life of the church, and even so that we might incorporate it here in the life of our church, reciting it a few times a year for our own benefit. Um, and uh, I explained all of that last week. If you weren't here, uh, you'll need to get the notes from a friend. There were copious notes, uh, I'll tell you that. Uh, and, and if you'd like to kind of catch up and understand the background and the why we're doing all of this, um, you can also go to our YouTube channel and, and listen to that sermon or any others in the past um, as well. Uh, one little thing I didn't draw out last week in both services that I should have. Uh, so if you were in the first service, you might not have heard this. There are some, um, I don't know, sort of controversial or eye-catching lines in the Apostles' Creed, and if you're not familiar with it, it could be a little unsettling. We talked about one of them, the dissensus part, but the other one I didn't mention in both services was the phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and some of you did a little head tilt, you know, what's that? And so let me just give you a quick explanation of that. I was just going to wait till the, um, the, when we got there sermonically, but I'll do it now. Uh, Holy Catholic Church, small c, Catholic, simply means universal. So if it were capital R, C, Roman Catholic Church, that would be a different thing altogether. Lower c, Catholic, is just an adjective meaning universal. All Christians that belong to God, here and now, ages past, ages to come, Catholic. Just so you know. So if you're sitting here thinking, wow, Pastor Eric's taking the church Catholic. Uh, well, depends on what you mean by that. I will recognize that we are part of the universal church by God's grace. So just to let you know that. But this morning we begin with the first stanza of the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That is a packed sentence. That is loaded. There's four sermons right in there. And I'm going to do all of them this morning and as short a time as I can here. Um, but let me begin with sort of a cheeky statement here for your consideration. Not all gods are created equal. Not all gods are created equal. You can think about sort of the Roman uh, pantheon of gods, Zeus and Poseidon and Ares and all of their flaws, right? Or you could think about, say, a more modern sort of uh, movement, Mormonism, often claims to be Christian. No, no, we're Christians just like you. And yet their theology says that they don't believe in a triune God, but in fact three separate gods. It's very different than what we believe. Or you might think about sort of the New Age movement, where they would say something like, well, everything is God, or God is in everything. Okay? Or even probably more popular right now is what I will call secular humanism, which would simply say, well, I can pluck a little from this, a little from that, choose what I want. And in that sort of model, we find essentially, I'm God, right? I'm the final arbiter of what's true for me. Self-deification. So not all gods are created equal. And in the case of the Christian God, the God of the Bible, he is not created at all. He is the eternal one, existing from eternity past, self-existent, self-dependent, self-sufficient, and it is he who has created all that is. 
And um, before we get on to the sort of the nature of God here and start to unpack that a little bit, uh, we have to start with what seems like a really simple phrase, and that's the words, I believe. You may be sitting there going, oh please, Pastor Eric, how hard is that? I think we got that. I think we got that. But I want to challenge you with that a little bit, that there are sort of different levels or different quality of belief, if you will. If you open your Bibles to uh, the book of James, chapter 2, verse 18, and we'll kind of highlight some, some aspects about this first phrase here, I believe. Uh, there are different levels of belief, different uh, sort of levels of conviction or quality of belief. For example, I could say to you, I believe that in the next three weeks between now and my goat hunt, I can lose another 10 pounds. And you're like, you shouldn't, you know, or what limb are you going to cut off, Eric? Because you're not going to, right, that's not going to happen. I could say, and I, you guys know I'm a big basketball fan. I love the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry's my guy. And I could say, they just acquired a big, finally, someone over 6'9 on the team. I could say, I believe the Golden State Warriors will win the NBA championship this year. They got a tall guy. Or I could say with supreme conviction, I believe dogs are better than cats. And we all know that to be true. I was waiting for some hisses from my cat people. Where are you? Yeah, I know where one of you is. Yeah, I see you guys. James, the half-brother of Jesus, helps us to understand that there are different levels of belief uh, in, in the second chapter of his epistle. In verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So fascinating here. Different levels, different qualities of belief. If that were not the case, then the demons could recite the creed or at least this part of it with full conviction in the same way that we would. But in fact, uh, as we think about the demons, I mean, consider this. They believe in God. More than that, they know there's a God. They have a, probably a greater level of conviction and certainty than you or I do. But that is not saving faith. That is not a saving belief. That they've seen God. They've been judged by God and they've set themselves out against God. They absolutely believe there is a God. And so what that brings to our attention is it's not enough to simply believe that or even know that there is a God. That is not saving faith. Saving faith is a belief that has become operational in our life. It functions in our life. It's not simply enough to believe that. We have to believe in. And that's what James is sort of communicating here, that operational belief is shown in everyday actions. Show me what you do, I'll tell you what you believe. And that's what he gets at, verse 20. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not Father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, if Martin Luther were sitting here right now, he'd be squirming a little bit. Martin Luther didn't really like the epistle of James, and he'll have to reconcile that comment with God. Right? He called it a right strawy epistle. That was for his words. Sounds like a curmudgeon. But he gives a helpful summary of the uh, intent and importance of this passage when he says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. And that's the gist of it there. So the reformers kind of developed this, and to do so, they used, of course, as they would, the Latin. And as you guys know, Latin makes everything clearer. So we're going to use a few Latin phrases this morning, too, to kind of look at this understanding of different levels of belief or faith. The first is this. We would call it notia. This is simple, simply a belief or an understanding of the facts and the data points. Okay? So it might sound something like this. Um, I know that exercise is good for me. Yep, I know that. Heard that report, seen them. I'm aware of it. That's notia, just knowledge, awareness of, knowledge of. Uh, The second level here is what we call a census. And this is acknowledging that something is true. So not only am I aware that the information is out there, the data exists, science has proven, yeah, that that, um, exercise is good for me, I believe that to be true. I agree, I affirm it, uh, it is good for me. But the third level, fiducia, is exercising that belief or that trust. It's, It's a life that lives consistent with it where it becomes functional and operation in our life. It's belief in. In other words, I have heard the reports... Working out is good for me. Uh, I believe that they are true. And finally, fiducia. Okay, I will go to the gym and actually get on a piece of equipment and actually do some reps. Right? I was just there yesterday, and there was, there was a woman there in the same section that I was working at, and she was sitting on the, the seated press machine for like 20 minutes. Didn't do a single rep. She had her phone out. I swear she was playing Candy Crush or something, you know. <laughs> And I thought, she's going to go home I'm like, man, I was at the gym for an hour, not seeing any progress. And I'd be like, that swiping finger is getting in good shape, though. G.I. <laughs> Packer talks about this same idea, and he summarizes uh, sort of the creed's opening words. He says, the opening words, I believe in God, render a Greek phrase coined by the writers of the New Testament, meaning literally, I am believing into God. That is to say, over and above believing certain truths about God, I am living in a relation of commitment to God in trust and union. When I say I believe in God, I am professing my conviction that God has invited me to this commitment and declaring I have accepted his invitation. Right? Or I could stand here and say, I believe that that chair will hold me. I can also go and sit in that chair and entrust myself to it. And that's what's behind these words, I believe, and entrusting faith, believing into. Uh, more than that, notice also that the, the first words here, this is in, it's in the first person, I believe. 
And that might be a little strange because we're so used to hearing it recited. Why, why doesn't it say we believe? And I think it's significant that it's in the first person because true faith is a matter of personal belief, individual decision and conviction. My faith can't save you. And yours can't save me. Or as my good friend Dave Chausse has said, God doesn't have any grandchildren. We are either directly related to him or not at all. We have to come to a place of personal belief in God, entrusting ourselves to him and in the means of salvation that he has provided. Uh, The second phrase we're looking at here, I believe in God the Father Almighty. And here we find two affirmations about God that are each relational. Uh, First of all, Father. Um, as As I showed you last week, in fact, if you'll take your notes and turn them over and look on the back, you find the creed there. Um, and if you'll see, it's, I've got it sort of arranged in three blocks so that you can notice that the creed is actually arranged in a Trinitarian fashion. It begins with the Father, and then with the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. And so when we find this first phrase here, Father, part of what we're understanding here is the Father's relationship to the other persons of the triune Godhead. He is the Father to the Son and to the Spirit. This helps us understand the triune uh, nature of God. And this was important, especially for Judaism in the second century when this creed emerges. If you think about it, for hundreds of years, Judaism really focused on the oneness of God. And one of the ways we can see that even is from Deuteronomy 6.4, a passage known as the Shema. Shema is Hebrew for hear. And this is sort of one of the early creeds of Judaism, which is affirming the oneness of God. And so this will be familiar to you, the Shema, Hebrews 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So you can imagine coming out of Judaism having recited this your whole life and for hundreds of years this was part of their worship and now we believe, right, that God has revealed his son, not just, uh, not just the son, but God the son and that God the Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. So there is this understanding now of, okay, so we have three persons and one God and so there is this need to develop a theological framework for properly understanding this. Also, we would have to say that the oneness of the tripersonal God was something that needed to be emphasized, particularly for those who are coming out of polytheistic background, sort of the different religions uh, around, from, you know, from the neighbors of Israel. So the Apostles' Creed is wonderfully arranged in a Trinitarian way to try to help, under, help them understand and explain this. And as we would find out, it's insufficient, and other creeds would be developed, if you're familiar with them. The Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed developed this more, but those are sermons for another day. So, so first of all, Father here is a, is a way to understand God, God the Father, as distinct from the Son and the Spirit, though the three are one. The second sort of relational part of this uh, is that, amazingly, Jesus teaches us that we can relate to him as father. I think this would have absolutely blown away the disciples when they came to Jesus and 
asked a very understandable question. Jesus, teach us to pray like you do. Teach us. And he tells them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. And even that term, Father, there uh, is a very intimate term. It's kind of like dad or daddy. It's Abba. It's a way that a little child looks up to their dad and says, Daddy. It's incredibly relational and close-knit. I was, I was thinking about um, just that privilege that we have to call uh, God our Father in that way, and it reminded me of sort of a funny story. When I was a, a college student uh, down at Biola many years ago, many moons ago now, I had three jobs to pay my way through, and one of those jobs, my favorite job, was a catering job. And I liked that gig because you got to serve sort of the dignitaries of the school and those that might come through. And the other thing was, if you served that night, you got to eat the food that was served that night. And that was a lot better than what we were getting in the cafeteria. So I was happy to serve those dinners. So one, one evening, I was serving at the president's table, President Dr. Clyde Cook, who is a wonderful man, just kind of this gentle giant that everybody loved. And I was serving his table, and I, the meal was over, and so I, I went up to ask if I could remove his plate. And I said, Clyde, can I take your plate? And he said, sure. And I took it away, and I'm walking away going, I called him Clyde. I called President Dr. Cook Clyde. And I, you know, I didn't want to draw any attention to it, so I just finished up my tasks. And by the end of the night, I saw him kind of standing over in a corner pretty much by himself, and so I I pushed in and I said, Dr. Cook, I am so sorry. He said, for what? And I said, when I was serving you, I called you Clyde. And if you know him, he just had this great chuckle and he says, I rather enjoyed it. (laughs) And that thought came back to me as I was thinking about this. God rather enjoys that we call him by this close, intimate name, Father. He enjoys that. It is meant to reveal something about God, that he is personal and relational. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He loves you. He protects you. He cares for you. He provides for you. I know for many of you here, when you hear the word father, it does not bring up good feelings or good emotions. You don't like ascribing that to God because of your own experiences with your earthly father. Some of you would say, I didn't have a father, not helpful. Or some of you might say, I had a father and I would have been better had I not, not helpful. And if that's the case, if the concept of father is hard for you to positively apply to God, then I would ask you a couple of questions to maybe reframe it. What kind of father did you want? What kind of father do you want for your kids? If you're a dad and you didn't have a good one, what kind of father do you really want to be for your kids? Filling in the gaps of what was missing in your life. Think about that. The the human analogy of an earthly father is meant to help and, and all analogies ultimately break down. But it is meant to communicate that God is father is meant to communicate that he is relational, loving, protecting, and providing. And Jesus himself uses uh, this analogy to argue from a lesser to a greater. In Luke 7, he says, 
Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, thanks Jesus, how, uh, if you then know you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I was thinking about the popular song, I think it's Matt Redman. He is indeed a good, good father. He is. The second affirmation in the stanza here uh, is also relational, and it's the word almighty. And you might look at that and go, uh, Pastor Eric, how is almighty a relational uh, term here? Father describes his relationship to the Son and to the Spirit and to us. But the term almighty unpacks his relationship to everything else, right? He is the almighty over all earthly powers. Romans 13 tells us that all power and authority on this world is ultimately derived from God himself. And on that basis, we're able to submit to rulers and leaders and governments and whatnot. Not always a popular doctrine in Alaska, but all powers ultimately derive from God. Uh, we see this on display as Jesus is, is uh, in front of Pilate on trial, if you remember this. This is in John 19. And personally, I think this is a hilarious passage. Super funny to me. Jesus is sitting before Pilate, refusing to answer his questions about where he comes from. And so Pilate kind of gets in a huff and offers this one up. Do you refuse to talk to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? In other words, Jesus, I'm kind of a big deal. Don't you know? I think that's hilarious. Jesus is sitting here. He is co-creator of all that exists. Eternal God, eternal son. He made Pilate. He gave him his power. He knows Pilate's, he knows all of the days ordained for Pilate. He knows Pilate's secret thoughts. He knows his secret sins. And here before Pilate, he's sitting quietly, and Pilate's like, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. I don't, sometimes we, this is a little personal rant here. Sometimes we think, Jesus, was he really, was Jesus really tempted like we are? Tempted as much as we are? Was he really I'm going to say I think he was tempted more because he's omniscient. He's all-powerful. Pilate says, I'm kind of a big deal. I mean, how tempting for Jesus just to go, pow, all right there, big deal. Like, how do you feel about that? Instead of just flicking him away, he gives him a verbal rebuttal. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. All power, all authority is derived from God himself. Also here we see God is not just one of a pantheon of gods like the Greeks or Romans believed. He's not one God of many equally valid options as our world uh, would like it to be. The Christian God, the God of the Bible, makes the audacious claim to be the true and the living God. The Lord God Almighty as the scripture says, there is no one like our God. There is no one. 
Today we've sung the word holy many times in our songs and we'll continue to. It does not just mean that one is without sin. It means that one is completely other. And that is what we are declaring about our holy God, that he is altogether other. Think even of the um, angel Gabriel who announces the good news to Mary. Mary, you're going to carry the Savior of the world. You're going to bear the Savior of the world. And Mary expresses her astonishment. Um, Some conditions haven't been met yet. And the angel gently chides her with these words, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And that might be the very thing that you need to hear this morning as you are hoping and praying for some particular miracle. Nothing is impossible with God. The psalmist captures this in Psalm 135, 6 by saying, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth and in the seas and all of their depths. And I kind of love that last line because we're used to hearing the phrases in the heavens and on earth. And then he just kind of goes to this mysterious place. There are depths of the seas we haven't been to, won't get to, won't ever see. And God does what he wants there too, even in the mysterious. He does whatever he wants. The third phrase we get to is this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. The very first words of the Old Testament, the, old, the first words of our Bible begin with the familiar words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the New Testament, John's gospel, connecting the Christian faith with Judaism, he also begins with a creator, God, as he affirms particularly about Jesus, who is a co-creator along with the Father. He says, through him, Jesus, all things were made, And without him, nothing was made that has been made. The God of the Bible is presented from beginning to end as a creator God. And so it's only right that a creed, if it's going to faithfully follow the contours of the revelation of God's word, that it would also begin with God as creator. The the phrase here, the terms heaven and earth, also uh, not meant to simply designate two particular spheres where God was creatively at work. It's not like saying, well, I built a home here in Fairbanks, and I built a cabin out at the lake. So, you know, Fairbanks and the lake. It's not as though God only created these two places. By saying heavens and earth, it is meant to convey everything in between, all of the cosmos. Uh, In the same way that we might say from A to Z, or from floor to ceiling, or I looked high and low. The point is, everywhere. And that's what that phrase is capturing. The heavens and the earth, everything God has made and has made it for himself. Um, That God is the creator uh, is something that is revealed to us in Scripture on virtually every page. This is not an insignificant or peripheral doctrine. It's incredibly important to the very nature of God. And probably my favorite place to highlight this from might surprise you, but it's actually from the book of Proverbs. If you would turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 8, I want to show you this just fascinating passage here. And what we find here is called a personification. The Bible is so beautiful and that it has different genres and styles of writings. Right? We've got stories, narratives, we've got apocalyptic, we've got history, 
Uh, we've got parables, poetry, songs, all of it in the Bible. It's wonderfully diverse in the way it's written. And here we find in what's known as the wisdom literature, or the book of Proverbs, uh, this creative way of personifying wisdom as sort of a witness to the creation. Uh, so in verse 22, we'll pick it up. This is sort of this wisdom speaking, personified wisdom. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago. At the very beginning when the world came to be, where there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields, or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the foundations of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side, I was filled with the light day after day, Rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. I think what is so fascinating about this is wisdom sort of displays, is sort of portrayed here as a person who is a witness to the creation of God. And the word here for wisdom, the Hebrew word is chokmah, it's a word taken from the traits. Think of construction, fabrication, engineering, anyone who is a maker anywhere. It's taken from that realm. When you see somebody build something or do something with incredible skill, that's sort of the word. And so Proverbs takes that word and employs it into life so that we would be skilled at living life. The way we see a skilled craftsman, we want to be skilled at living life. And so this idea of chokmah, this skill, stands back as a witness, so to speak, of God's creation and says, not only did he make it all, but he made it all well. He made it all well. And, and you and I know this, we experience this in life. There are times when we see something that someone has made and we stand back and look at it and go, that is so wonderfully made. It's such quality. It's been so skillfully done. Uh, you might look at somebody sewing and you see the consistency of their stitches, and you'd go, that person knows what they're doing. Or you might look at somebody's welding and say, they didn't just tack that together, but they took care and delight and joy in making good and consistent beads to form a really strong union. Or you might open up your electrical box at home, and you'll know what kind of person worked on your house by what you see there. If it's done well, you're going to see all of the wires coming in on parallel, right angles going to their termination, and then labeled obsessively. And when you see that, you go, yes, this is good. This was made well. You could look at the fit of a carpenter's joints and see the tightness and the precision. Uh, we have a, a local craftsman here, Dale Rowland, who's probably annoyed right now that I'm mentioning him. He built our welcome center out there. I'd encourage you before you leave, just go look at the corner joints and see how the dovetails are put together. It's made well. You could look at somebody's woodshed and see, oh, 
16-inch cut birch, 16-inch, every time, 16 inches, stacked in there beautifully like a Jenga tower, right? And go, that's done well. And we see those things, and they sort of bring delight to us when we see that something is, is done well. Or the last one, an apple pie with a perfect bake. Crust is gold and not burned. It's cooked all the way through, no soggy bottom, no leakage on top. Perfect. It's done well. And so I, there's just such a delight in seeing something done well and seeing the skill was at work. And this passage portrays sort of this witness, this imaginative witness to all that God has made to say not only did he make it all, but he made it all well. I'll give you a few examples of how we can actually see that. Consider the fact that this earth rotates consistently and predictably so that we have predictable days and nights for the most part. Alaska's kind of a wild card there. How does it do that? How is this thing constantly spinning? No one's spinning it, right? I mean, sort of, but... Or think about this. Not only is it spinning, but it travels around the sun in an elliptical fashion. What naturally travels in an elliptical fashion in the natural world, right? But it does, and it does so producing, again, predictable seasons. Or how about this? The earth is just the right distance from the sun so that the sun is a gift and not a bonfire, right? That's a good thing. Or come out of the cosmos and come right down to the ground, even on your way home today. Look at the grass as you're driving down the road or in your own yard. The clover and the grass reach into the sky and pull out light from the sun and pull nitrogen from the air and take it into the soil, enriching it, making it nourishing so that it continues to support life. That's incredible. One last one. Think about this. The next time you pick up a seed, look at a seed. In this little thing, the size of a grain of sand, lies the potential for something as large as a tree. Somehow all of that is embedded in this little kernel of something. And in the right conditions, it will germinate and reach into the ground and reach into the air and pull all the good things that God has made so it will be what it was made to be. God has not only made all things, he has made them well. The psalmist says this as much in Psalm 139, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. So that is our very full and pregnant first phrase, first stanza of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this distillation, which tells us so much about God the Father, and we also recognize it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. I pray, Lord, that we would delight in who you are and your goodness. I pray that this creed would help us understand you, but at the same time, it would pique our curiosity about you, that we would be ever learning, ever discovering the largeness and the majesty of our God, who has done all things well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.